Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, we are back with perhaps the most unlikely convert in the book of Acts. It's easy for us reading these stories uh, you know, all this time later to uh, read through this and be like, oh, well, that was cool. But uh, this chapter is absolutely shocking if you're reading this for the first time. And sometimes it's hard for us to remember and appreciate that as we're going through the, the history of God's people and the history of the early disciples. Uh, but this is an amazing thing that God does in the book of Acts that just... Yeah, it's really... It's really one of those chapters where you do a double take whenever you get to it. You're like, wait, is this, uh, is this really the same guy? Is this really the story? Is this really what the Bible's trying to tell me? Uh, because we're going to be talking about, of course, Saul, who we last saw back in chapter 7, was somebody that the people, as they were stoning Stephen, were laying their, their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Acts 7 and verse 58. And then in Acts 8 uh, that we went over last week, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They're all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And verse 3 tells us that Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. And so this guy is rough. Uh, he, he's a radical. I mean, that's really what he is. Um, and he's, out there to kill and to imprison anybody that's in his way of his, of his mission for being a Pharisee. Yeah. And it's crazy to think, I mean, he'll say later in Acts 23 that he's doing all of this in good conscience. Uh, he really believes that what he is doing is right and is pleasing to God. He is radically devoted to God, but he has a dramatic misunderstanding of what that means. And he's going to be corrected in this chapter. So this is really picking up uh, where Acts chapter one or Acts chapter eight verse one left off. Um, Saul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. And uh, verse three says, "But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison." And so then we take a little bit of a detour and talk about Philip. And now we come back to, to Saul's ravaging the church. So let's pick up at Acts chapter 9. Uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, we'll read verses 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, 
And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So this uh, is a dramatic uh, scene. Saul is in the very act of pursuing Christians, which actually that's what the word persecute means. Kind of interesting is the idea of pursuing. It's used a couple times in a positive sense um, in, uh, in the New Testament. But here it is very negative. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So much so that he's not content to just go after the ones in Jerusalem, but Damascus is a pretty good journey up to the north, um, north of the Sea of Galilee. And he is pursuing them even to foreign cities. And he gets letters from the high priest so that he can go into these Jewish synagogues. I'm assuming he would go there like on the Sabbath day and come in and say, are there any, is there anyone here belonging to Jesus? And it's kind of interesting here. He says, belonging to the way. Uh, what's he talking about when he says like the way? That's kind of an interesting description there. Yeah, I think he's talking about Christianity, uh, those who follow Christ. Uh, of course, we know from John 14, 6, one of the famous things Jesus will say is, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. And so that obviously would have been kind of what made Christians separate from really any other religious organization of that day, including Judaism is that their claim is the only way to God, the creator of the universe is through Jesus. We have the way you have to go through Jesus. And so that was just a unique, a unique way to describe them. And uh, you actually see it a few more times in the book of Acts. We'll, we'll get to some of the other times down in chapter 19. Yeah, it's really cool. That if you want to look those up, it's Acts 19.9, and 24.14, and 24.22. There are, I think, six times in the book of Acts that uh, the way refers to the Jesus movement, the, the disciples of the Lord. Um, and so Saul is going to track down, hunt down these Christians and bring them bound to Jerusalem. And his trip is suddenly interrupted. He sees this light and falls to the ground and hears a voice. And again, it's hard for us to imagine how shocking this would have been for Saul. I, I don't know what Saul's concept of Jesus was exactly before this. I'm assuming that he would have thought this is a false prophet. You know, he's leading people astray. Uh, he's you know, telling people not to keep the law or something like that. Uh, there were lots of rumors going around about Christians uh, in the Jewish community. But um, I, I don't know if this is a great equivalent, but like, it would be like if I was going out, you know, pursuing Muslims or something, and then like a light shines down and I hear a voice and I'm like, who, who are you? And it says, I am Mohammed. <laughs> and it's just like a total paradigm shift. Jesus, like you're alive. I'm persecuting you. Like this would have just been a stab in the heart to Saul who thinks he's serving God. And it turns out he is dead wrong. And Jesus is alive and he is in big trouble. Yeah. Because he, yeah. He, he's, per, he's persecuting Jesus. Yeah. If you're Saul at this point, you're probably thinking it's over. 
you know, this is uh, this is the end of the road for me. Um, I have been been doing what's what's wrong. I've been persecuting Jesus, who apparently is real, by the way, and I'm I'm just done for. Um, I also I think there's some comfort in this text as well, as you think about Jesus standing up for his people. Um, when Saul says, "Who are you, Lord?" Jesus will say, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting." Of course, Saul wasn't physically persecuting the body of Jesus in terms of like the actual human uh, son of God. Uh, Jesus at this point, as we know, has been dead. He's been resurrected and he's been ascended to the right hand of God. And yet Jesus still uses this vernacular of you're persecuting me. Paul will later, later write in first Corinthians 12 that we, the Christians, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. If you're persecuting us, Christians, you're persecuting the body of Jesus. Jesus is the head of that body. And Jesus feels that, he knows that, and he's there to stand up for us. And I think there's a lot of comfort there. Um, so we see Jesus standing up for his people here. And um, Saul, of course, I think is very scared at this point. He's not sure what's going to happen. But Jesus will tell him in verse 6 to get up, go into the city, and it's going to be told to you what you must do. Now, I I think Saul is still not in the clear at this point. I think, I think there's still a little bit of him that's nervous as to trying to figure out what's going to happen. But uh, nonetheless, uh, what an amazing encounter on the road to Damascus. Amen. And the men with him, I don't know what they thought about all this, but they're speechless. They hear kind of a voice, but they don't see anybody. Um, and so, and of course, then Saul is blind for three days, which, of course, the great irony here is he's blind, but now he can finally see clearly. He's really been blind up to this point, but now his eyes have been opened. And so for three days, he's fasting, not even drinking anything. And I mean, I think I would have lost my appetite, too, with something that upsetting. Um, and so he's waiting. I mean, and the last thing he sees is the face of Jesus for three days. And that's just um, amazing to think about. Well, um, that brings us into verses 10 through, we're going to read halfway through verse 19, and I'll read that for us. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Acts 9, starting in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And as he has seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So we're introduced to 
one of the early disciples named Ananias. And um, wherever he is, he's sitting there. And uh, the Lord comes to him in a vision. Ananias. And he, he responds appropriately, right? Here I am, Lord. That's the best thing you can say. <laughs> and uh, that's actually something we see several different people say uh, whenever God or, or the Lord goes to go to speak to them. And um, the Lord tells him that he needs to get up and go to the street and go to this house where a guy named Judas lives. Um, it's not the same Judas as we read about in the Gospel of Mark. That, that guy's dead by this point. And he says, you're going to meet this man named Saul, and he's praying there. And he's seen in this vision, you, and he's gonna, you're going to go and lay your hands on him uh, so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias gets his commandment there. Uh, he, he gets the, the direction from the Lord on what he needs to go do and when he needs to go do it. But there is some hesitancy from Ananias, rightfully so, though, right, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, Ananias, this would have seemed like a, 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 a suicide mission. Um, like, Lord, are you sure am I supposed to go to this guy's house? Like, I've heard about him, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And this is interesting. Like they knew that Saul was coming to some extent. He, they knew that he had authority from the chief priests. I don't know if the Christians had gone underground at this point and were hiding, but man, he is just uh, not sure, but the Lord reassures him, like, go. And it's interesting how he describes Saul. He's a chosen instrument of mine. And he's got some work for Saul to do. He's going to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I he's will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul has caused a lot of suffering and he's going to end up suffering a lot for the sake of the Lord, but it's going to be a beautiful thing. I mean, he's going to go from persecutor to persecuted by the end of the chapter. And um, yeah. So Ananias has the faith in the Lord to get up, go to the house and he, enters the house. I imagine he took a deep breath before he goes in and is like, okay, here we go. And uh, he comes in, he lays his hands on him. And I'm sure once he finds him, he's like, this is a different man than the man I expected to find. He's blind. Um, and so he says, listen, Jesus appeared to you on the road. Jesus came to me um, so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, this is kind of interesting, something like scales falls off his eyes. I don't know exactly what that was. That's not a typical healing thing, but he's healed of his blindness. And the first thing he does is he gets up and he's baptized. Before he even eats, like, this is a hungry guy. But there's an urgency here to his salvation. And so he is baptized immediately. And sometimes I like to think, that, think about this it is clearly at the beginning of Acts 9, we have a lost man. Absolutely. He is in his sin. He is in rebellion against God. This man is not saved. And by the end of the chapter, we have a man boldly proclaiming the gospel in Damascus and in Jerusalem. When was Saul saved? Was it when he saw the light? 
Was it when he was praying for three days? Was it when Ananias came in and laid his hands on him and his scales fell off his eyes? Or was it when he was baptized? Yeah, th- those are all really good questions to work through. And the really cool thing is, is this story about Saul's conversion is actually told two more times in the book of Acts, once in Acts 22 and once in Acts 26. And whenever it says that he's a chosen instrument that's going to go bear his name before the Gentiles and kings, 22 and 26 are some of those times where he's with some of the higher ups of the land. And he'll recount his conversion experience, Saul will. And uh, when he's talking about Ananias, in Acts 22 and verse 15, he'll say, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So that's Ananias' direction to Saul. And so it's very clear uh, at what point his sins were forgiven. It was when he arose and was baptized and called on the name of the Lord by uh, appealing for a good conscience, uh, a better conscience, to have his sins washed away. Um, that's, that's when that happened, is that baptism. That's right. And so we, we can't tell that exactly from Acts 9, but Acts 22, uh, verse 16, just nails that down. Um, if anybody could have prayed a sinner's prayer in those three days, it would have been Saul of Tarsus. And, and we know he was praying. That's right. Yeah. And Saul, I just can't imagine his forgiveness I mean, it's a beautiful thing for any of us to be forgiven, but not all of us have done things quite as severe as Saul was doing, breathing threats and murder against Jesus's disciples. And I just would wonder, like, how, if I was Saul, like, how how on earth can Jesus forgive me after what I've done, after the people I've hurt and, and, and led them to their death? How, how can I be forgiven? And yet, he, Ananias tells him the good news. You get up and you be baptized and wash away your sins. That is just incredible. And, and, and Paul will say later on, again, name changed Paul, but uh, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I, I just love what he says about himself here. Um, uh, he'll say in verse 16, this is 1 Timothy 1.16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, in the verse before he says, Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul recognizes that his forgiveness and conversion is evidence to everybody of every age of how God can forgive. If God can forgive Saul of Tarsus, he can forgive you. And that's, a, that's incredible because sometimes we have a hard time believing that. We have a hard time really thinking through, how, how can God forgive me after what I've done? I've done too much wrong for too long, and I'm just unforgivable. And you can't read Acts 9 and come away and say, I'm unforgivable. If Jesus can forgive Saul, he can forgive anybody. Yeah. Amen. What, what a comforting text to go to, to, to find comfort that Jesus forgives, even as we might think the worst of sinners.
Well, uh, Stephen, I guess that brings us to the latter half of verse 19 through verse 25. You want to read yeah. that for us? Yeah, so we have a very different uh, work that Paul's doing at Damascus now. Um, <laughs> picking up in 19b, um, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. All right. So Saul is on his way to Damascus to tell everybody that Jesus is not the son of God. And if you believe such a thing, I'm going to arrest you. I've got the papers here that say I can do that. I'm well within my legal right to do it. So he's going into the very same synagogues. So I guess his destination never changed. The Lord went along with his plan to go into Damascus, but his message and intent was completely different. Gets into the synagogue and he's proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God. Um, already, as the text told us earlier, he would go to bear the name of Jesus before kings, Gentiles, and the sons of Israel. And this is going to be a theme for Paul throughout uh, many of his missionary journeys. Whenever he goes into a city, he'll go into the synagogue and proclaim Jesus as the Christ. Um, and, you know, as we're sitting here kind of in awe of Paul's turnaround, so are the people in verse 21. I mean, they're also standing there going, you know, th isn't this the guy who in Jerusalem caused that havoc, who caused that uproar, you know, in chapter 8 and verse 3 and 4? Uh, there was the Jews that were scattered, the Christians that were scattered because of the persecution that Paul ensued, or Saul ensued, sorry. And so this is just an amazing turnaround for Paul. And it's fascinating that, I mean, he's now confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus. He's proving that Jesus is the Christ. And how quickly does he go from being the one doing the persecuting to now being the one being persecuted? Uh and again, the way Luke writes, we don't know exactly how long he was in Damascus. Um, Luke says, when many days had passed, verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him. Uh, they are ready to get rid of this guy. He's gone to, in their minds, the enemy, <laughs> you know, the, the, the other side. This is what changed him. And so Saul finds out about their plot and they're watching the gates day and night. So it's like, as soon as he comes out of the city, He's a dead man. And so they have to figure out a way to get him out of the city. And so they uh, take him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I imagine this wasn't the most uh, graceful <laughs> escape, but it was the way they could keep him concealed and keep him alive to fight another day. And so they, he gets out of Damascus alive, but just barely. Um, and this will be far from the last time that his life is in threat because of, because of the gospel. 
but this is what Jesus told him would happen. Um, and uh, I wonder if, if there's a bit of Saul that's thinking, whoa, he, he meant that this is going to start happening like right now. <laughs> like, yeah. And I mean, that, that's really an important lesson for us to realize. When we put on Christ in baptism, things might change pretty drastically for us. Uh, there might be relationships that are lost. There might be people who are against us because of our new decision to put on Jesus Christ. Um, so some of those things might happen more immediately than what we think. And that was certainly true of Saul, but in a much more extreme way. Uh, many right. of these people, too, were, were his friends. I mean, th these would have been people he had essentially been co-workers with uh, that were now wanting to kill him or, or by association were wanting to kill him. Um, so this is just a, an amazing thing that Saul's going through. But as, we, as Jesus will tell us, for those of us who are willing to give up and lose mother, father, brother, sister for the namesake of Jesus we gain more so in the kingdom of God. And that's certainly something we see with Saul. And we're about to read a little bit more about what he's gaining in the kingdom in this next section. So um, I guess that brings us to me. Uh, we're going to read verses 26 through 31 um, of Acts 9. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. So this is a, a fascinating encounter. Again, new convert Saul comes to Jerusalem. And he attempts to join the disciples. Uh, he's already a disciple himself, but God doesn't intend for Christians to continue solo. They, they need to join themselves to other disciples. And so he comes to the church in Jerusalem. He wants to join. And very understandably, they're like, whoa, this has got to be some other plot. This is uh, a trick. He's trying to, he's trying to infiltrate uh, I don't know what all they were thinking, but they were afraid of him because they didn't believe that he's truly a disciple. Yeah. I mean, this isn't a church or a group of people that haven't seen him and seen what he's capable of. Like they, they have had their own brothers and sisters killed or um, thrown into prison because of what this man has done. Um, so that's important to realize that, that they personally know who Saul is. He has already personally persecuted this particular church once before. That's right. And man, you got to love Barnabas here. Um, he is nicknamed son of encouragement. And there's a reason. I mean, he sticks his neck out yep. kind of literally because like Ananias, uh, now Ananias had the benefit of a heavenly vision to like, okay, go like I've chosen this man. But Barnabas is like, let's, let's hear him out. And, and I don't know how that first conversation went, but Barnabas goes to Saul, hears him out, hears about his conversion, believes him. And is the link to get Saul in. He brings him to the apostles and tells him about how he saw Jesus on the road. 
and then he's able to go in and out among them. And this is, again, just an incredible testament to the forgiveness in the early church. Saul has ravaged these people. He has just done so much damage. And I don't know how he, how he would have interacted with these people who are missing family members because of him. And yet, there had to be forgiveness here. And isn't that exactly what Jesus has taught his people, is to love your enemies, to pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. If these people had been following what Jesus said, as they were, I think some of them could have said, Saul, I've been praying for you. And I never thought the Lord would answer in the way that he did, but I was praying for you even as you were persecuting us. And now here you are. And, and he's able to do effective work in the church at Jerusalem after everything that he's done, even against them. And this is just an amazing example for us because there's times where we're going to hurt each other and there's going to be people converted who used to hurt us. And God's church, his assembly needs to be a place where we find forgiveness and acceptance. And again, if they can forgive Saul, who can we not forgive? Uh, it's really amazing to think about the, the forgiveness among the early disciples. It might be really tempting to look at the work that Saul is doing and think, you know, maybe he's just trying to make up for lost time. Maybe he's just trying to do all this good to counterbalance or whatever the, the, the bad that he did. But th there is no amount of good he could have done to make up for the wrong that he did in his previous life. Um, Paul will later write in Titus 2 and other places about the idea of being motivated by the grace of God, um, by the fact that he has been forgiven. He's going to work for the Lord and give it his all, uh, all to the glory of God. And that's an important lesson to learn here. Um, even somebody who is as sinful as Paul, he's not being motivated by his guilt of what he did to everybody and what he did to Jesus, but he legitimately loves the Lord loves the grace of the Lord, and he's using that in his work in the kingdom. Um, and that will become more and more evident as you read through his, his different journeys in the book of Acts, and you read through his different epistles um, in the New Testament. Um, so knowing the story of Saul of Tarsus is going to be really critical um, for not only what happens in the rest of the book of Acts, but also some of the things we hear him talk about in his, in his letters to the churches and individuals as well. So this is an important chapter uh, for us to learn. And let me just say, as a side note, uh, historically, and as far as like evidences for Christianity, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is huge because we can look in history and be like, yeah, like Saul really wrote, books like first Corinthians and even skeptics would accept several of the letters that Paul wrote that talk about his conversion, that talk about him changing his life completely. And if you're a skeptic, you have to grapple with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. What would motivate a man that high ranking in Judaism? His whole life is invested in this and overnight he turns completely around and it's not for his own betterment. Um, he is going to be persecuted. He's going, there's going to be attempts on his life. And the thing is, his relationship with the different churches isn't even going to be all that great. Like Corinth and other places. Like, it's not like he's just a celebrity in the early church. Now he does a lot of good work and a lot of people look up to him, but there's a lot of people after him too. 
he'll write in Philippians about how people were, you know, preaching, hoping to afflict him in his imprisonment. Like his life got a lot harder. Why would he change if he had not actually seen the risen Jesus on that road? And that's something that everybody has to grapple with. Kind of like the empty tomb we talked about in Mark 16. These are historical facts. The tomb of Jesus was empty. Why was it empty? Saul of Tarsus completely changed his life and suffered for it. What motivated that change? And the only thing that puts all these things together is the risen Jesus. His resurrection is the focus of all of this. And his risen appearance to Saul of Tarsus um, is just one more piece of evidence, historically speaking, to strengthen our faith and to say the only thing that can logically explain these facts is a risen, living Jesus um, yeah. who changed Saul and is changing the world. Yep. Amen. Um, the other thing that is really uh, cool is, is you see as he's moving about freely in Jerusalem, they, they love him and they trust him. And they're even looking out for his well-being. Uh, because when another conspiracy arises to have Saul put to death, we don't read about like the brethren in Jerusalem being part of that conspiracy or anything about that. No, what you read is those brethren find a way to get him out. And they take him down to Caesarea and send him on to Tarsus. They're looking out for him. That's their brother in Christ now. And that's, a, that's an amount of forgiveness that I, I don't think I've ever experienced. Um, they're, they're truly looking out for his well-being. But I love what it says in verse 31. Uh, it says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Um, look, on that front end of it, it tells us that these churches in that area enjoyed peace for a time, which kind of makes sense. The leader of the persecuting Jews has just been flipped. Uh, he's been converted. Uh, I love that God did that. God loves it when the odds are stacked against him. If there was ever anybody that, that we might say they'll never be converted, it, it would have been Saul. And God goes in there, works on his heart, and Saul converts. And so by, I think, my understanding of this, this is something Stephen and I talked about not that long ago. Uh, my understanding is now that Saul is kind of moved out of the way, there seems to be a time of peace for these churches because the biggest persecutor in the Jewish realm right then has been turned to Christianity. Um, and so the churches there get to enjoy peace because of that. And um, there were two ways God could have done that. Uh, he could have either A, killed Saul, or B, turned him into a Christian. And he went with the latter. And thank God for that because half of our New Testament is written by that very man. Yeah. And I love the description here at the end of verse 31 and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's just a beautiful sentiment of, of what's going on here. Um, there's a fear that we need to have of the Lord, a deep awe and respect uh, for his power, but also the comfort of the Holy Spirit who's working in the hearts of people and working in the life of, of Saul of Tarsus even. And um, the church continues to multiply again the persecution that arose because of Saul could have been the end of the movement. And yet we've had these unlikely converts and none more unlikely than Saul of Tarsus and the church continues to multiply by God's grace and the movement marches on. It's a beautiful yep. thing. 
That's right. Uh, Lord willing, next week we're going to get into Acts 9.32 and talk a little bit about Peter. Um, really, we'll talk about Peter for all of Acts 10 and some of his ministry early on in the book of Acts, um, his adventures and eventually his meeting a Gentile named Cornelius. Yeah. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, do please subscribe, rate, review. Um, if you'd like to reach out to us personally, if you have questions about what you're hearing, um, reach out to us, 717-585-0949, uh, capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information about group studies or other ways to connect, uh, capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.